power for life. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has secured his third term, making him the first to hold the position for this long since Mao Zedong. He faced zero competition, with zero votes against him. Plus, he stacked his cabinet full of his loyalists. With growing scrutiny on him, Xi Jinping is now lashing out at the United States, naming Washington directly in a rare show of directness. But is it all for show? to bolster nationalist pride inside China, or is this a foreshadowing of what's to come? And how will it impact Taiwan? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Chinese leader Xi Jinping might hold his power for life. He officially secured his third term Friday, making him the longest-serving head of state in Communist China after Mao Zedong, the first head after the Communist Party came to power in China. The vote favoring Xi tallied over 2,900 to zero. All of those voting lawmakers appointed by the Communist Party. Uh, as long as he's alive, or at least um, able to function, uh, he's going to be in control of the Chinese Communist Party. What's more, Xi just completed a cabinet reshuffle, filling Beijing's top leadership roles with loyalists. He's now surrounded by more cabinet loyalists than any other Chinese leader has been in decades. And that support may be fueling the regime. In a rare move this week, Xi took direct aim at the U.S., saying Western countries led by Washington have implemented all-around suppression and a siege against China. In identifying the United States in name, he's uh, drawing lines uh, in, in the sand between um, his vision for the world, his vision of, China, of uh, his interests, and um, how the United States opposes that. So it's just another symptom of how this a Cold War is becoming colder. It's becoming more intense. But the Communist Party leader still faces a myriad of challenges, both at home and abroad. China's economy is still reeling from three years of strict pandemic-driven lockdowns. Investor confidence in China is waning, and a demographic crisis is looming, as China reported its first population decline in six decades. On the international front, Xi's approach to Taiwan is putting Washington on alert. Beijing seems to be ramping up preparations for war. It's opened more than 100 offices to mobilize defense resources across the country and launched a cell phone app to help residents in the city of Xiamen react during wartime. Xiamen is located just across the water from Taiwan. The regime also aims to boost defense spending by 7.2 percent this year, a faster pace than the country's GDP target. Bradley Thayer is a founding member of the Committee on the Present Danger China. He says the U.S. military should have a strong presence in Taiwan, noting that America relies on Taiwan for the world's most advanced microchips. He explained why the island of Taiwan is a thorn in Beijing's side. And most importantly, it shows what China could have been. If the communists hadn't won, uh, China today could be as democratic as Taiwan. It could be as prosperous as Taiwan. It could be as free as Taiwan. So Taiwan's existence is a very important symbol of what China could have been and what it someday might be. Thayer is urging the U.S. to speed up decoupling from China and strengthen the nuclear arsenal. That's to send a message to Beijing that it wouldn't survive a conflict with the West. The Chinese Communist Party is tightening its grip on the nation's data and monetary resources, that action coming in the name of structural reform. NTD's Sam Wang has the latest. 
China's rubber stamp parliament approved a new plan Friday, seeking to reorganize institutions. It includes establishing a national data bureau and a financial regulatory body. The new financial body is designed to close loopholes within multiple agencies that oversee the country's money-related services. In other words, it takes the power to supervise out of different sectors and puts it directly into the hands of the state council. Song Guocheng, a researcher from National Chengqi University in Taiwan, says the move is telling about how the CCP functions. I don't think it solves any issues. The whole ideology of the CCP is to have everything monitored, supervised and controlled. This is a serious ideological problem. The National Data Bureau, on the other hand, will be responsible for coordinating the sharing of data. It will also gain oversight on China's internet while ensuring the CCP's access to the information. A professor of Taiwan's National Yunlin University says that data is vital for the CCP. The CCP has recognized the necessity of centralizing data control. To establish a national database, they combined the Cyberspace Administration and National Development and Reform Commission to strengthen their data control. He added that otherwise, China will face tremendous challenges from other countries in the fields of business, science and politics. Sam Wang, NTD News, New York. Following reports that Beijing is running illegal police operations on American soil, a New York Police Department officer is now reportedly backing the Chinese Communist Party on Douyin, China's version of TikTok. In a video, he appears to threaten a U.S. resident. The person had been arrested by Chinese police for opposing Beijing's stringent zero-COVID-19 policy in China. The officer asserted that the resident would be sorry if the officer found her after returning to America. The comments came from Officer Ben Hu Wong, a five-year veteran now serving in the 79th Precinct in Brooklyn. His threatening remark, possibly causing reasonable fear of harm for the Chinese national living in America, Ms. Jiang. During her visit to China in December 2021, she argued with a local pandemic prevention worker over anti-COVID-19 rules. She was then arrested for 10 days in the city of Xi'an. A strict lockdown was imposed on the city's 13 million residents at the time. Since then, reports of the immense human cost of Beijing's zero-COVID-19 policy have emerged online, from locked-down residents starving at home to pregnant women suffering miscarriages and citizens getting publicly shamed for violating virus restrictions. Various critics have condemned China's harsh lockdowns, but not Officer Wang. Another video posted on TikTok also highlighted Wang's ties to the CCP. It shows him singing the CCP's national anthem while wearing his New York police uniform. Back in 2014, Wang was praised in an article by the state-owned Chinese newspaper China Daily for contributing to the rise of Chinese-American officers in the American police force. He was serving in the 109th Precinct in Flushing, New York at the time. Russia's state-owned nuclear power giant allegedly sending enriched uranium to China. A U.S. official remarked on the news during a hearing this week before the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Strategic Forces. Rosatom is a Russian state company specializing in nuclear energy. And reports say it's supplying China's fast breeder reactors. Here's why that matters. There's no getting around the fact that breeder reactors are plutonium and plutonium is for weapons. So 
I think uh, the department is, is, is concerned and of course it matches our concerns about China's increased uh, expansion of its nuclear forces as well because you need more plutonium for more weapons. The reports come months after a string of headlines in December. At the time, diplomats from Beijing and Washington said they met for talks aiming to cool military tension. The same day, Russian engineers delivered a large shipment of nuclear fuel to a remote island. Known as Changbia Island, it sits just 120 miles off of the coast of Taiwan. The small landmass is home to one of the world's most eyed nuclear facilities. U.S. Intel says it's used to produce weapons-grade plutonium, with estimates saying that in the next 12 years, material from the facility could quadruple China's weapons stockpile. A buildup on that scale would put Beijing's arsenal on par with the U.S. and Russia. China and Russia have placed nuclear weapons, space warfare and long-range strike at the center of their strategies to counter the United States and our allies and partners. Driven by those details, a group of U.S. lawmakers presented a new bill Friday. If passed, it would ban Russian uranium imports. Ultimately, we should have two shared goals, ensuring our credible deterrence and strategic advantage over our adversaries and reducing the number of weapons and chances of warfare on all sides. Supporters say halting purchases from Russia would have several effects, financially cutting off Moscow as it continues its war on Ukraine, reducing U.S. dependence on Russian energy, and spurring uranium production on home soil. Currently, the U.S. is unable to fully produce enriched uranium. Washington is not seeking a technological decoupling from China. This from U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo on Friday during her India visit. The United States does not seek to decouple from China, uh, nor does it seek a technological decoupling from China. The U.S. is tightening its export restrictions on chip-making technology to China. This is aimed at hobbling Beijing's ability to enhance its military. China's explicit strategy is to have these technologies and, uh, and deploy them in the Chinese military apparatus. Those are technologies that we have uh, used export controls to ban the sale of to China. Raimondo added that most trade with China doesn't pose a threat. So we enjoy trade with China. The vast majority of trade with China uh, is in benign products, and that will and should continue. So this isn't about decoupling. Earlier this month, former President Donald Trump laid out his plan for trade with China if he's reelected. And I will implement a four-year plan to phase out all Chinese imports of essential goods and gain total independence from China. We have to do it. In his first term, Trump launched unprecedented economic sanctions on Chinese companies and blacklisted dozens of companies. Europe joins America's chip war with China. The Netherlands preparing to slap new export restrictions on semiconductor tech countering China. The Dutch government made the announcement Wednesday, saying the move seeks to protect national security. The Netherlands is home to the world's top maker of microchip manufacturing machines, ASML. Its multi-million dollar lithography machines use powerful lasers to create the mini-circuitry of computer chips. This marks the first time the nation has voiced a concrete plan for curbing chip exports to China, joining ongoing U.S. efforts to limit Beijing's access to high-tech microchips, thus to slow the country's military modernization. 
Back in October, the U.S. imposed sweeping export restrictions on American shipmaking tools to China. But for the restrictions to be effective, other key suppliers in the Netherlands and Japan must take up the same policy. The ally countries have been in talks on the matter for months. China's foreign ministry responded Thursday. Spokesperson Mao Ning said China is firmly opposed to the decision and noted China had large representation with the Netherlands. The Netherlands trade minister says his country will introduce new rules before this summer, while Japan is expected to update its chip equipment export policies as soon as this week. The biggest military exercise in Southeast Asia just wrapped up on Friday. The live fire drill took place in Thailand and is known as the Cobra Gold Exercise. This year, over 7,000 personnel joined from 30 countries, including the U.S. and Thailand. The event serves as a key platform for Washington to shore up alliances as it faces off with the Chinese Communist regime's assertiveness. Coming up, the full tally of COVID-19 deaths in China remains unknown, but an estimate says it could be up to 36 times as many as Beijing claims. Here's what George Calhoun, director of the Quantitative Finance Program at Stevens Institute of Technology, had to say about China's extremely low official death rate. 37 deaths uh, after they released the, that's, I, you almost uh, think there's a sense of humor, dark humor there to report a number like that. More from Calhoun on how he came to the estimate and why it matters for the world after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China's real COVID-19 death rate, possibly 36 times higher than Beijing claims. This from George Calhoun, director of the Quantitative Finance Program at Stevens Institute of Technology. We spoke to him about how he came to the estimate and why Americans should care about what's going on in China. George Calhoun, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So there's been a lot of focus on the pandemic, China's role in it, the policies, all these different takes. And if we look at the numbers, right, Chinese officials had reported just 37 cases since December 7th. That's when all the testing and quarantine was ended. And then suddenly the number jumped to almost 60,000. How do we read these numbers? Well, all of the numbers that have been reported, I would say after the first 90 days in Wuhan, those numbers were probably accurate for that area in that small time frame. But on about the 1st of April 2020, the Chinese statistics just shut down on COVID, re reporting COVID mortality, reporting anything really related to COVID. And in fact, you went about two years, there were no COVID cases reported at all, which is just an impossibility. I think in China, there was clearly an active decision after April of 2020 to suppress the data pretty much as completely. And that's continuing. I mean, as you point out, 37 deaths uh, after they released the, that's, I, you almost uh, think there's a sense of humor, dark humor there to report a number like that. And on that note, we are seeing, you know, say local reporting or people on social media just saying, you know, like everyone I know in this area has died or like everyone from my class has died and it's not reflected in those numbers. So how can we get closer to figuring out what that number might be? 
Well, there are a bunch of different ways that uh, people have tried to get a sense of what the real COVID impact is. Um, one approach that I looked at earlier on is uh, simply something called excess mortality overall. So you can look at the trend in the death rate per 100,000 population. In This is data that the WHO or the UN will routinely correct, collect on all countries. And in China, it moves along until 2019, and then it inflects upwards. And that inflection in the 2020 and 2021 uh, amounts to about a million unexplained excess deaths above the trend. And I think that's a starting point, that something was happening. There was some kind of public health crisis that added at least one million excess deaths in 2020 and 2021. What could that public health crisis have been? Well, um, I think COVID is probably at the top of the list for, for answering that question. Another approach that some uh, groups have taken is to try to develop a demographic model based upon comparing the experiences of other countries. So you can look at a country like New Zealand, for example, which was a very strict lockdown uh, approach, or Korea is another one, or, or I'll get to Hong Kong in a minute. And you look at the mortality rates, the infection rates, and the mortality rates, and then apply those to the Chinese population. The Economist magazine had a very extensive modeling program, has a very extensive modeling program, which is all available online. They came up with a number of something like 1.7 million uh, deaths, excess deaths due to COVID. And as I say, those numbers today are coming in anywhere between one and three million. And on the note of mutations, it does seem, you know, with the current after lo the loosening of the policies in China, a lot of the cases coming out have this phenomenon of the white lungs where it shows up white in the CT scans, meaning there's like liquid in the lungs. And that wasn't seen since the early outbreak in Wuhan, Wuhan that yes. had that very high fatality rate. And if it is the Omicron variant, that doesn't normally attack the lungs. So that was leaving a lot of experts really confused. As to your question about the, uh, the nature of what variant it is that's now going through the population there, you know, one of the uh, side effects of the lockdown and the very severe measures that were taken in China all that time was that they didn't allow the development of, of even some degree of natural immunity in the populations. I think about uh, how they're going to be able to handle the, the COVID epidemic. And I think there are some overly simple scenarios being peddled right now about, uh, as I said, okay, we've took the lid off, we'll let it go through, and you know, 90 days down the road we'll be okay because um, uh, everybody will have had it and, and uh, we'll be ready for business again. And I, I'm not so sure about that. We have seen multiple waves of COVID in the United States, in the West. Uh, there are people now who believe it will become a, um, an endemic in illness that uh, just repeatedly every season, perhaps like the flu, becomes something that we're going to have to just live with and deal with uh, on an ongoing basis. With that, why is it so important for us to know what's happening in China? Well, the, the virus came out of China. Uh, there's nothing unusual about that uh, for various reasons demographically. 
China seems to be the source of many of the viruses, the flu virus and others that, that affect then a larger global population. So if, that, if we start with that fact, I think ideally we would like to have a very close uh, ability to observe what's going on in China, to observe quickly as any new variants emerge. If they do emerge there, we'd like to be ideally able to have good visibility, um, fully transparent uh, and, and up-to-date, as, as accurate as possible. That uh, is what China has not allowed to happen from really the first outbreak right on through to today. The, the um, destruction of data, the uh, hiding of information, the suppression of uh, reports of all sorts, the um, making it difficult for even the, the World Health Organization to investigate. Uh, all of that has uh, put a, a big cloud uh, of uncertainty over this very critical part of the epidemiological chain. If all of these uh, variants are going to emerge from the Chinese population first and we have no visibility to that, that's, that's a that's a big handicap for health authorities uh, everywhere else in the world. It does seem, especially with this pandemic, even institutions like the WHO have come under massive scrutiny because in the beginning they're like, oh, China's so transparent, they're doing a great thing. And then now people are like, no, they weren't. And then now the whole institution is coming under scrutiny. Well, I think there was a an immediate reaction in many circles to uh, try to avoid appearing to blame the Chinese uh, government or the Chinese uh, health authorities when the outbreak occurred. And China certainly abetted that, uh, that process by uh, trying to cultivate the WHO, the w health, World Health Organization, and, and get them to report what would be favorable to the Chinese position. And with the not wanting to blame China, I think a big part of that was not wanting to be racist to the Chinese people, not making sure making sure there's not a rise in anti-Asian hate and all that. So with that, how do we, say, hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable without targeting the Chinese people? How do we make that distinction? Well, I have never felt that that was actually a valid sort of causal chain to worry about. I mean, I have dozens of Chinese students. I have dozens of Chinese colleagues uh, at my university. I don't look at them and think, okay, that they are associated with a government that made some very bad decisions uh, any more than I, I have Russian colleagues. I don't look at them and, and think that that's, I don't, I, I don't think, okay, I can't deal with you because uh, Putin has invaded the Ukraine. So I, I think that the idea that there was a racist component is is a red herring. Well, George, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.